The better you understand and manage emotions, your own and those of people around you, the more you build a growing toolkit to help you navigate relationships, change, and disruption. Emotional intelligence is also a key lever for personal and professional success. Want to grow your emotional intelligence? In my flagship online training program, the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence Courses, you can develop and deepen your skill set with the 12 crucial competencies in my emotional intelligence model. You can learn more at DanielGolemanEmotionalIntelligence.com. That's one word, DanielGolemanEmotionalIntelligence.com. And you can use coupon code PODCAST to save $50 on registration. What does it feel like when you feel like you belong with your friends? It can make you feel happy, good, joyful. And if they're new friends, they can make you feel a bit scared. What about new friends can be scary? Because you don't know them, and so you might think that they might be mean to you, and they might not know that they want to be friends, and know that you're nice, and how would you be able to know that they're nice? You were telling me the other day about a story when you were in the hall and you overheard a conversation between two older kids. Can you tell me that story again? One said to someone who had dark skin that he didn't really belong because he had dark skin. And that felt bad. Do you know what that's called when somebody is excluded or they are a certain way because of the color of their skin oh is it um it called being um racist welcome to first person plural emotional intelligence and beyond i'm elizabeth solomon and i'm here with my co-hosts Daniel Goleman and Hanuman Goleman. Hi, Dan. Hi, Hanuman. Hi, Liz. Hello, Liz. I can't wait to share today's episode with our audience. As the third act in our series on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, we're featuring a written piece and an impactful conversation with Brittna Bennett. Our executive producer, Gabriela Acosta, and I actually met Britna through a four-week storytelling lab that we ran this past summer, where we gathered people together to write through their experience of the pandemic as a way of processing the past year and a half. We are exceptionally lucky to have Britna share a piece which illuminates some of her daily struggles as a Black woman in corporate America, dealing with bias at the critical gateways and pathways that our first guest, Madupe Akinola, spoke about. One of the things that I understand came out of your conversation is the importance of finding and seeking out internal champions, particularly for marginalized folks within an organization. These are leaders who are willing to advocate and stick out their neck for you at work. This makes me think of the coaching and mentor competence of emotional intelligence. Dan, can you share a bit about that? Coaching and mentoring comes down to a kind of tutorial for how things work here, how to get ahead, uh, what you can do to be better positioned for advancing here. And, um, you know, it, it has to do with the difference between a hard skill and a soft skill in terms of learning. 
hard skills, you learn the way you learn math. Uh, it's uh, one trial learning pretty much. But soft skills like emotional intelligence, how to get better at, at being an employee here, for example, uh, is something that you need some modeling, some practice in. It's more like improving your golf swing. It takes time. It takes work. And that's what a coach or a mentor can do for you. Uh, be there to help you uh, understand what it is you need to do to develop more strengths and then to show you how to do it and help you practice. Yeah, I think the other component to this too is actually the competence of influence, right? And that one of the ways that we um, can garner influence within an organization is to build a network of strong relationships. And, and Britna's story is a great example of creating networks within the organization with people who are willing to not only show up as coach and mentors for her, but who were willing to influence others on her behalf. So let's jump into this conversation with Brittna Bennett. It wasn't what it seemed by Brittna K. Bennett. For a long time, it seemed like life had me misunderstood, or perhaps I misunderstood life. For a while, I was not sure which was in the driver's seat, but I knew I was in the passenger seat or even in the trunk at the worst of times where it seems everything was absolutely beyond control. At the beginning of 2020, I was working in yet another job that at first seemed like refuge from my past three jobs that also had me misunderstood, or as my younger self would call it, they had me fucked up. <laughs> yet here, I was performing like a machine yet again, working 12 hours to the bone and giving my students and my cohorts my last kidney if they happened to ask for it at 10 p.m. on a Sunday. It was theirs because they meant everything to me and still hold a special place in my heart, period. To have to face the senior leadership, and yes, heavy on the air quotes, leadership team, to have to face them daily and see their surprise at my intelligence, my work ethic, and that in their minds, I had far surpassed their disrespectful, belittling assumption that this job was somehow a stretch job. Based on what? You saw my resume. You had received my outstanding references. Yet when I walked in the room, you built a separate box for me in your mind. <sighs> Deep breath. I digress and progress. From this lens, I thought that folks' assumptions about me would not be conquered unless they themselves decided to evolve. And so I kept my heart and my mind on the highest thought and decided to focus on being great at what I do. Until I got a new boss who filled me with a lot of hope. At first, it was false hope for the organization. And then it smoldered into a baby ball of fire that fueled actual hope and eventually inspired a deep reflection of myself. Such as the times where we go to the eye doctor for our annual exam to test for a new pair of glasses. Each time a new lens of perspective was added over the next few months, I was able to see another degree clearer. Lens one. It was around February-ish. 
I say ish because time and space have felt so blurred over these past few months. Space and dates blend together and I barely remember what I ate for dinner or that in order to have clean articles of clothes at your disposal, you actually have to do your laundry. It was another day at work and I had just learned that my boss, whom I had added to my list of fearless leaders, had fought for our team to receive professional development grants. I thought this was an awesome step in the right direction, and I tried hard to forgive and ignore how I had been scarred from the first few months of working here, but instead to focus on how kick-ass my boss was and that there was at least one person who really cared. It had been years since I had had the opportunity to work with a leader who walked in honest and radical leadership. Here comes the scary part. I was really excited for the grant, but what the freaking crap was I going to develop myself in? It felt like I haven't thought deeply about myself in years. I was only looking to develop outside of myself, giving my entire self to work, my students, my emotionally abusive relationship, my family, my friends. And that about sums up the focus. By the time I had a moment to myself, I didn't even really know how to be with myself. I almost wanted to scream and cry when my boss warmly followed up to check in if I had decided what I wanted to invest my development grant towards. I couldn't even think of anything sexy to say, such as a LinkedIn course or a business conference in DC. I was honestly having an out-of-body revelation that I had lost tune with myself. Or better yet, I've grown, and it's time to check in with myself, my environment, and my direction. What are my gifts? Do I even really have any? Honestly, to me at the time, I truly couldn't see myself. I was too busy at war with all the assumptions being placed on my body, my mind and my capabilities as a black woman of much intersectionality and truth that the world was not quite ready to uncover. And so part of my survival was moving with a Jedi shield of knowing my audience very well and adjusting my voice and my light like a dial on a radio just to survive for pretty much my entire life. Lens two. I didn't know it yet, but I had slowly tipped the first domino in a chain of radical self-exploration. Much later, the seed of exploration would bear a tiny leaf and in more time, its first flower of self-love. Beautiful, huh? Well, hold that thought and please put on your seatbelt and chest harness as we ride the roller coaster of truth, pain, victory, confusion, grief, and more that came along this ride of self-evolution. Like, why doesn't anyone tell you any of this shit? Are there any kindergarten teachers up for a special guest speaker, me, to come to story time? I'd keep it as PG as possible, you know? Or maybe I should just keep speaking to college seniors. That might be more appropriate. I'm still marinating on this concept, so I'll circle back on this at some point. As I began this process, I decided to take note of what I did in my day-to-day that filled me with joy, what made me feel like I had this glowing ball of light in my heart and in my belly that made me smile or truly laugh out loud. For one, seeing my students recognize their own gifts, truths, and the power, that abundant world-changing light that I could see in them all along, this gave me the breath of life. I noticed how I love music and maybe also a little bit too much wine, I also noticed what people mentioned to me that I did really well at. I had heard I had a gift for listening, 
truly seeing people and making folks feel comfortable. Of course, I didn't think too much of it because I was like, hmm, well, I just never thought about it. And it just kind of feels like how I move. I also noticed that I had a hard time accepting compliments. I'd evolved from a hybrid of Britna and sometimes Breton. You may be wondering who's Breton. Well, she is the self-protective side of me who emerged, who can type a corporate clap back at 30 seconds per paragraph. Britna is more accepting and in the past has swallowed offense, microaggressions, disrespectful behavior, and has the knowing that hurt people hurt people. So it doesn't actually help anything if I hurt them back. I still knew they had me fucked up though, nonetheless. Yes, Breton. She's the part of me that was birthed to protect. And yes, I said protect myself as a Black woman in corporate America and a Black person in America in general. Yes, protect like a scab, a tough external barrier to shield a wound or a recurrent injury. Because for years, there was no one to protect me. This was long before the wake-up call that was George Floyd's murder that shook the globe. What I know is that we can't go back to the way things were. It was much like living in a silent horror movie where we witnessed the most terrifying atrocities and no one was saying anything. I know so many of us have been awakened and are now open to tough yet meaningful and critical conversations. I can see myself more and more each day standing in my power and releasing the trauma as I transform and transcend into purpose. I know that my experiences have a very unique gift in serving my calling and everyone I'm meant to partner with and also touch as I walk in being and breathing the change that this world is destined and so desperately needs to see. You just heard Brittany Bennett read a powerful essay she wrote on her experience as a Black woman in the corporate world. We're honored to have Brittany here with us today to reflect on this essay her career journey, and the trials, tribulations, and insights that come as a result of deeply held biases in corporate America. Yeah, it is such an honor to have you, Britna. We were lucky enough to have you in our storytelling lab this past summer, and your writing has always been so powerful and one of the things that really called us to you for this piece was that you've always really identified your experience as a woman of color, as like you said, an intersectional woman in this world into your creative writing. And we felt like this series on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging really required a piece that could really speak from that voice, that place of power and reflection on what has gone well for them and what has not gone well for them in this corporate environment and in the work world. So I would love to kind of get you to to kick things off by telling us a little bit more about what this piece means to you specifically. Yeah, thank you so much, Gabby. I think, um, first of all, just thank you to you all for also being, you know, part of that new trajectory and new chapters ahead in my life where I'm not only seen right now, but just also the things that I've experienced 
that at one point writing things like this, I would write to just make sure that when I read it back, like I'm still saying, like, did that just happen? Um, and just kind of pressure test my own reality or not, or just like, even as I'm moving forward to new experiences that are getting better or on the right track, like not knowing what I would do with some of the traumatic things I've experienced before, um, like what purpose did that serve? So I, I'm just really thankful for the space to express and be creative and also share like the purpose in my story and those experiences um, and bring light to them and conversation and ultimately transformation. So I'm honored to be here. Mm. We're so grateful for you too. So I really think this piece is kind of just like, you know, taking a moment to reflect on what my career experience has been. Now I have the honor of working in diversity, equity, inclusion as a consultant for talent management and DEI. Um, I also coach first-generation college students and graduates so to help them as they're entering the world and then as they get to that world, helping the leaders who have the opportunity to shift and actually make that world equitable and inclusive. So kind of hitting it from both sides. They like say you have a PhD in your own life um, and those lived experiences. So I think it's just a way for me to not only reflect on my own evolution, but bring light affirmation to folks who may be experiencing similar challenges or maybe managers or leaders who are just folks who are in these environments, anyone who's got a job, you might be seeing a lot of things and either don't know what to do with it from the person who's being impacted or the person who has the opportunity to impact it. Um, But I think these just types of stories not only help me to reflect on how far I've come but also um, I think also tell the story of like what that journey was like you know I've shared with someone I felt I had psychological safety with that honestly I don't I can't afford the therapy I need to work here and I'm like you could put that on record like that's also an equity challenge and also the fact that those things live with you for a long time so it's so important It's like that saying is coming up to my mind where they say, it's not the person who makes the mess who remembers it, it's the person who has to clean it up. I think like that's kind of where being able to be brave enough to tell these stories, um, especially because they're so tender and I'm not only working through the healing, but also the advocacy and what I can do to impact it. So it started off as just something I wanted to share in our writer's tribe. And now I think it's like part of the movement. (laughs) I so appreciate that. Like I I can just imagine so many people will feel so seen in the words that you've written. And there was one line that really stayed with me when I first read through this piece of yours that said, at the time, I truly could not see myself. I was too busy at war with all the assumptions being placed on my body, my mind, and my capabilities as a Black woman of such intersectionality and truth. Oof. Can you talk a little bit more about that experience of what it was like to not feel fully seen or appreciated in your work environment? And and how did you work through that in the moment? Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, it's it's interesting, even when I think about that line, it's almost that I could fit it in like at least three job experiences, probably four. 
that I've had. And I've had the opportunity of shifting through multiple industries at this time, corporate America, nonprofit, startups, now consulting. And just that feeling in itself was in some ways, you know, part of my social identities are being a first-generation American, first-generation college graduate. So you kind of come into this place with this run fast and hard and get to the top. Um, And also there's a bigger goal at hand in terms of like shifting the trajectory of like our family, our what could be generational curses, blessings, or particular um, hurdles impacting specific communities, communities where I'm from. Um, and so you break into now my, another part of my journey, if you will, as a first gen corporate America person, like I'm in this place where it's almost like if you're thinking about project management or workflow, like me being able to go into a room and also process that, hmm, I'm getting, I'm just feeling a shift in the energy. I need to, I adjust as well. Like I notice a specific example of have had experiences where I've walked into a room and in the same breath, someone who was my manager spoke to me so harshly and differently from, from just based off of like a simple question I asked them because I'm managing a particular workflow. And there's one thing where it's like, okay, well, you know, you're having a tough day. I, I have tough skin. You're my boss. You talk to me a little rough just now. I, I'll come back after you've had some lunch. Cool. But it, to see the transition in the same breath, in 10 seconds, you're speaking to me harshly. In the next seconds, you're speaking to my colleague of a different social identity and assumed level of affluence that you're speaking so warmly and kindly to, to them. So I'm like, well, it might not be that you're having a bad day. Um, it's almost like you're colloquial in an abusive relationship or something. Like it wasn't until, you know, a very senior leader came to me after they witnessed a remark that my manager had said to me and was like, pulled me in a room. I was like, how long has this been going on? I'm like, what, <laughs> you know? And it's like, I knew what they were talking about. And I also knew when I spoke to HR that they said, this person had a file <laughs> as if like, you know, it's what it is. Um, so me kind of like processing how to navigate certain environments, because this is the lay of the land, quote unquote, as if those experiences were okay. They're not. Um, and that even when you spoke up, nothing would be done about it. That's also not okay. And also considering that, well, I must be in some form of a, just a foreign place I need to navigate like I'm not foreign (laughs) you know this is something about this environment that is like it seems like no one else can see what's going on here or that they think it's okay but it's absolutely not okay um so I'm processing all of those things while also being you know entrusted with the work capacity that I'm given like like there's a thing we all know this thing like if they see you're doing a great job they're going to give you more they see you can handle more, they're going to give you more. Um, and even like witnessing that, okay, I was putting in that fuel that kind of comes with just like being first gen or being the first or just your own drive to want to produce, you know, great quality work and top product. Like 
I know so many of us can relate to that, just being someone who pushes themselves and produces like top-notch work with integrity. Um, it kind of is this toggle between, am I trying to prove myself to myself or to the things that have been placed upon me in terms of like pressures that I've absorbed from some of my social identities? Or am I pushing myself to prove it against the environment, the blatant, how long has this been going on? But all along, I'm kind of just toggling between the dissonance of like, well, I show up every morning in my little corporate suit. I say, good morning. I'm the sweetest, like, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing this conversation with you and it seems very different than anybody else you're having try to get some feedback from HR. They've normalized the situation. And yet when I look at my performance reviews, I'm getting all fives and fours. And like, that's like the top of that measure. And like people who I've trained are getting promoted before me. Um, I'm not getting up for the promotion, but I'm being trusted to handle the biggest like accounts, if you will, um, the biggest partnerships or be at the front, the forefront of certain projects or external engagements, but it's just so many different layers to process. My brain is exalting energy to do that. Um, and feeling like there's this difference between what I'm a- aware of is happening inside, but what no one else is, is naming, almost like the twilight zone. Like, am, is this, are we both in the same reality? Or is it not reality to you because it doesn't impact you and it's okay. It's just, it's normalized. So there was so much to process. There's so many layers to what you're saying too, about like the, the hustle, the push. Right. And I hear the piece of like, am I proving this to myself and what it is to be a first generation American or first generation in a corporate environment that sort of demands this kind of hustle. Right. But I'm also hearing this piece of like, what happens if you stop pushing? What happens if you as someone who is marginalized and like the tide is already working against you? You know, I think many white cisgendered people can show up in the workplace and um, there's a lot of getting away, right? Like they can skate on their identity. And so the effort can ebb and flow. It can wane in any given moment and no one's going to raise a question mark about it. But that constant, constant sort of holding back the, the tides is what I hear and just want to like honor, um, what an incredibly exhausting and unfair and unnecessary position that is to be in. I so appreciate that. Thank you for just, you know, holding that space for that truth, um, and acknowledging, I think even as you you reflect that, it really makes me think about part of an additional pressure that I had in mind, like coming straight out of the college, accepting a corporate job, and also being a part of many programs that help you get into these opportunities. So I had learned the ins and outs of like, not what to expect through the experiences of going through um, different work environments that weren't trained to really be inclusive and equitable, but they just cared about the diversity part. But I learned just how to be quote unquote professional. Um, and I also had this unspoken, unwritten, just pressure of, I knew that my performance reviews better be all fives because I, I 
for myself set the standard that I want anyone seeing as how I noticed that if I walked in the room before I opened my mouth, there was a shift or like some assumptions or something being made that meant if another black woman who walked in this job a couple years after me, I better be on my P's and Q's because I want that next person behind me to know that the way has been paved and the reputation is unstained and all these different things, because it almost is like sometimes those with well intentions, it kind of feels like a little bit of a conveyor belt when you're going up in to an environment that on my immediate team of a thousand person company, for example, we're a team of like 10, I was being called my colleague's name, who was the only other black woman on the team regularly. I was managing really high visibility projects and things that, you know, my name. So if I was also kind of making space of like, this is where I kind of say the Jedi, I understood this unspoken thing that my performance, my reputation also somehow connected to folks who my community, folks who also have shared the same social identities. And so I'm rooting for them no matter where I go after that. And so I better show up in that suit and that good morning and that all fives on that performance view. And sadly, some of that is also ingrained in some of those programs before you get into these opportunities. So it is that Yes, we honor the intentions, but the impact. And there's also in this time, we're talking more about not just the learning, but the unlearning, right? It's so interesting when you said the word professionalism, the question that emerged for me is whose version of professionalism are we all taught and acculturated into, right? What does professionalism look like? And I think like, you know, it looks a lot like white American male culture and, and, you know, and, and it's really, um, this weight of like you having to take the responsibility of paving a clear path for other women of color to be able to, to have a, you know, maybe some chance of a welcoming environment or some chance of a sort of quote unquote, good association, um, when they come in and just like how, um, that's like, (laughs) like that is like too much weight for any person to take on. That's a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. And I'm hearing a couple different layers of this, right? Like we we're talking about microaggressions where like someone calls you someone else's name, right? Like that could happen to anyone, but it didn't happen to just anybody. And then there's the layer of bias in your manager and the way that they speak to you or that they treat you as compared to a different person of a different identity doing the similar job, right. in like direct and clear prejudice in your work environment. And so all of these things, they stack up day to day. And you were talking about, this is like everything that your mental health is impacted. Your burnout rates are going to go way higher when you're people of color in the workplace. And The question that I always run into is how helpful or how useful has it been for you to actually bring this to HR? You mentioned that you brought this case to HR. What did that lead to? Did the organization have your back? Did they support you? Yeah, that's such a great question. And um, absolutely 100% before I answer that, there's such, there's so many connected dots. And in addition to that, there's also what you tethered earlier with like, what happens if I stop? 
like my family cannot afford to pay my rent in New York. I won't potentially be able to eat. So I have to endure this until I figure out what's next. Um, And so with HR, and I think across the board, honestly, it just depended on who in HR I was speaking to. Um, And that's kind of something I learned. um, If I'm thinking about a corporate experience, I was lucky enough, and this became part of my Jedi strategy, that there were some people that they weren't just like senior leaders or, or HR personnel. There were also people who became my champions and supporters and I had that connection. So this is where that power of social capital like comes in the same thing that works when it's like, Hey, this is my nephew. Let's put him in the VP position. Like that kind of, it kind of was like, not saying that that's how things shifted, but that was where I was able to have a meaningful conversation likely with someone who may share one of my social identities um, and maybe are experiencing something at their own level. So I also can extend grace for leaders who would really want to do something. And they also may be experiencing some challenges or pushback at and friction at that level, even trying to push the needle. Um, so for some HR persons, they would listen empathetically. They'd take note, they'd write it down. Um, And that was the extent of it. Um, You still had to go back with your manager and just navigate that experience. Um, But as it relates to when things actually started to move, it really moved only when I was connecting with someone who was an internal champion for me, someone who had seen me since I started fresh out of college or actually because I had some internships there. They knew me since I was like before I even graduated college. So they've seen how I've like worked to my knuckles to get where I'm at. And they know what I'm bringing to the table. And they know, like, I guess they know me too. I can imagine so many people can relate to this, like having a high pain tolerance and not to say that you need that or that should be, you should even, you know, it doesn't have to get painful for it to be problematic. Right. Um, And so there were moments where I mentioned earlier about the promotion inequities. And so there was this one time where, for example, or something, if they had my back, if you will, but through that relationship and that social capital, that networking. So you got to be doing that as well. Right. And we do know that um, oftentimes minorities don't have the same access to social capital or the type of social capital that helps you to move so fluidly through these work environments that are upward economic mobile pathways to careers. Um, and so I remember there was one time where this was like my third up for promotion. I keep getting gaslit that yes, you're getting all fives on your, your performance and, you know, you're doing a great job and we're just looking for the right place for you. No, you did great on that last interview. We just look, we want to make sure we find the right fit, you know? Um, so I'm watching people that actually reported to me and I'd been there longer get promoted before me, even though I had strong performance reviews of the feedback was all positive. So what is happening here? Um, And it was till the point where like, I was up for another round of an interview for promotion. And um, I just observed a few things like me, Breton, she's also a lawyer, like she don't get real mad and spicy. She just observes the facts, you know? And so I noticed like, maybe like, 
our VP didn't say anything to me for like a week, but said something to the other person who was going up for the interview. They were like, you're going to do great. You have nothing to worry about. You didn't say that to me. And how did you know that? They didn't even interview yet. So just, you know, little blues clues here. And then, you know, getting to the point where I had a really strong interview. And even if it was internal, I see your girl still showed up in her tuxedo, printed that resume on resume paper, ready. And I remember the interview went really well. I got that feedback and I was going to HR to hear the, the, the verdict, like what happened. And it was literally, we were working on Martin Luther King Day. Just want to set up the preview for the devastation. <laughs> so went downstairs with my folder, like the folder had in there, the work I had studied and did my research to negotiate my offer because even my team started cheering before I went downstairs. They knew I got this. And to only find out that I didn't because it was just like in those kind of environments, sometimes honestly, you just hear the whispers of like, I knew something had to have changed. Like I wasn't the only one who was sure that this time it was it. And even so, like, you know, the formalities of interviewing or like whatever the case may have been, it was just like, it wasn't that this time, right? Something changed, something happened. And so I don't know what inspired me to do this, but I just literally wrote down on two Google Docs side by side, time, observation, notes, this and that, resume, experience. And I literally went to someone who was one of my internal champions who um, I had a strong relationship with, who was pretty senior in the company and was just like, hey, read these two. Um, She's like, you know, how's it going? What's going on? I was just like, well, I'm not doing so well. I'm having a tough time. I know I have to keep a strong face. So they teach you um, even in moments of dissatisfaction. And so I had a professional demeanor on the outside, but I was so broken inside. So devastated. This was the last straw I had. I was hanging on, trying my best to show up and just add a contribution to this company that I, I thought was someplace I was going to make long-term impact. And I showed her the two pieces of paper side by side and told her the context of what happened. I was like, which one would you hire? And she just literally got up out of her office and was like, come with me and walked me downstairs and had a conversation. And a couple of weeks later, I was interviewing and I got promoted. But that is some Jedi strategy. And that's also some luck that you even have someone in the organization who you've had an opportunity to build a relationship with, that you've been able to sort of exercise that network of influence and build that network of influence. And that's just not the case for any person in any organization. That's not always a given. And the confidence, I have to say, even though you said you're broken, there was some type of inner power that led you to stand up for yourself and you know, to expect that of somebody who's been pushed aside, pushed aside continuously, you know, it shouldn't be your responsibility. And I admire that you did stand up for yourself, that you asked for the support from your champion and that they then had the gall to go for it and push for you. But, you know, those are, those are chances that you can't always rely on, but I understand that you are now working for an organization that you are feeling incredibly valued and seen and supported in. And I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about like, what does, what does that feel like? What's the difference about what's the aspect about what you're doing and who you're working with and the culture that is creating that sense of belonging 
of the place where you are now. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, If I really reflect on this, I think one thing I'd be remiss not to say is that in that journey, like even when you highlight in that moment to have the courage to do that um, and, and see wherever it lands, right? My champion at the time could have done nothing. I wasn't expecting anything. I was just like, hey, this is how I'm feeling. And that they moved, right? And they had the gall to your point to do that on my behalf through our relationship. Um, I think just even that moment or that journey of being someone who like endured it, had the extra tough skin and navigating it to saying, no, this can go on no more. Like there's this internal shift you start to make as well to, you know, what you will accept and what you believe about your value and your worth. And when you start to name and be intentional about, you know, maybe I've done my max here that I can do to impact this. And I've done it honestly and earnestly. And I'm, I need to honor myself and self-preserve myself and move on to the next opportunity. The universe, I feel like also answers that call. Um, so that growth journey of my own internal, you know, observation, awareness, and just transformation, it started to happen outside of me as well. So in this new job, I really feel like it's my dream job. I honestly still to this day tell our team and our senior leaders um, that I didn't think this kind of place actually exists. I heard people say that they had a great job that they loved. I'm just like, that's like some urban legend stuff where y'all are just, you know, I'm like, sounds good. I'd love to see it. I haven't seen it yet for myself. And I've tried. I've knocked on a few doors, came for dinner. I've seen what I need to see. Um, And so this job is just like the difference of it is, you know, psychological safety, number one. And we talk about that so much. The company I'm working for, um, in addition to coaching um, college graduates and seniors at Lehman College, where I graduated from in the Bronx, um, I'm working for a company called the C-Suite. And what's so special about it is that what you see externally on the website is exactly how we live and breathe DEI, um, psychological safety, um, valuing talent, because this is what the work focuses on, talent management and diversity, equity, inclusion as a consultancy. It's exactly what's lived and breathed in the DNA inside. Um, and I experienced that and it's so healing um, that is kind of scary. <laughs> At first it scared me a lot because it was just like to go from not really being seen or not being able to always um, feel sane in your reality or that that was like distorted, um, especially in in being gaslit in your value. Um, Like I was holding on strong to like, no, I know who I am. I know what I'm capable of. This can't be real. This can't be true. Let me write it down. Let me bring (laughs) my homie a two page report of like, is this for real? Do you see what I see to now where it's like, when I produce something or when I speak something, I'm affirmed. It's like, no, you're incredible. This was awesome. We like everything. And it's just like, then I have to, now I'm shifting into the space of like, you can release those old voices and those old things that weren't true. And that is work. Like make no mistake that when you come out of a place that's like darkness, dungeness, that when you get into the light, you're sensitive to it. Okay. So 
being in that place where like, you know, just having great leaders who are so invested in you and they're really excited for what you bring to the table. They value each of us for our unique contributions. We focus on our strengths and we get coaching, we get development. Um, we laugh together, like we get shit done and we also are human first and foremost. Um, so it's incredible. And my team who I actually call our dream team will tell you, I cried my eyes out at our last offsite. And it was literally just because it was like to be in that environment and how I know that there are so many people that are going through the complete opposite. And I know, cause I've been through it and to be on the other side and just to be doing work that's fueling more people being able to be on the other side, leaders being able to have the tools to make sure they're not causing harm that takes so long to remove. My therapist called it, I was emotionally available. So I bawled my eyes out in such a beautiful expression of like, whoa, this is the revolution. So that's how it feels. (laughs) That's beautiful. That is beautiful. It's a beautiful ending, but I still have one more question. I'm so curious, and this could be both a personal reflection and it could be a societal kind of big vision for the world reflection, but it's like, what becomes possible once you're not having to make those side-by-side sheets, live with that defense, sort of be on guard all the time um, and are in a place where all of a sudden, you know, you said that you're emotionally available. It's like all this energy is available all this focus is available. I'm sure it like has totally impacted um, just even like what's possible for you in terms of like your mental functioning, all of it. So I'm so curious. Yeah. What comes after? Like, I would love to have you just sort of paint the vision for everyone, right. Of like, what comes after, right. Like what's on the other side. Yeah. I'm so excited. That's such a beautiful question. (sighs) So I could say from, a personal space and also just like from as being a coach like we know that I think it's easier to understand we hear kind of the the blanket statement of like when you do something well in one area of your life like it, it allows you to do something well all the other things well so to speak um and I think it's kind of easier sometimes to relate our lived experiences to like when one thing isn't doing well it kind of like stenches up and bleeds and cascades and overflows into the other things. Like if I'm working 12 hours, I'm not sleeping right. I'm not eating right. I probably didn't have lunch today. Um, I'm indulging in unhealthy things because my needs are not optional. So my health is off. My all the health, but my soul's health. I'm not, you know, my emotional health. What other creative personal development things are existing for me? my relationships, my friendships, like everything is impacted. Now think about the flip side where you're able to work in an environment that is like, no, what are your strengths? What energy? These are the questions I get asked at work. I'm like, do y'all want to marry me? Like, it's like, (laughs) uh, what energizes you? What do you feel most, you know, like alive doing? And there's so many different parts of the work, but to be able to lean into your strengths and also your development at the same time, Um, and to be valued for who you are as well, um, it helps you come out your shell more and more. Um, And it makes you not afraid. Like, I feel like, you know, it's inevitable that we'll one day get a glimpse of our our calling or our purpose. Um, If we're open to seeing that and to stepping into that, 
And you may have people along the way, such as you both, who like, you know, inspire you to take those steps or give you a sip of water when you're fatigued or just help you to become because we all need each other. So I bring something unique. My colleagues bring something unique. And together we really do make magic. Um, And I'm able to freely express maybe a wild idea. And me and my incredible manager will go back and forth and like, we'll just make something really impactful. And there's no limit to that when each of us are able to show up in our, our divine gifts and freely express ourselves, the good and the bad. Um, be honest about that and also not try to pose perfection but to just be honest in our imperfections and how do we connect with each other to evolve like it's just it just really is something special and it shows up in the work that we produce it shows up in the success that we have as a company it shows up in the the individual development that we bring to our collective space Um, and it shows up in the different clients we're able to work with to achieve their unique goals as well so it's a it's an infinite expansion of good and possibility I'd say you know what Britain is saying reminds me of uh... One of my professors, Irv Staub, who survived the Holocaust as a child in Budapest because Raoul Wallenberg gave him a Swedish passport. And um, Irv devoted his life to why evil happens. And what he said was that it has a lot to do with the silence of bystanders. Silence seems to condone what goes on. And what Britain is talking about is the obverse. She's seeing it from the victim's point of view. But I think the culture that lets this kind of thing happen is one where people don't speak up. So I really want to applaud that senior executive who said to her, how long has this been going on? Because he was able to see and name something that others must have seen, but not named, not spoken about all those years. It sounds like people did name it and speak about it. And there was a growing file on this person and that somehow that system tolerated uh, both the file and the activity. I think it's a touchy thing, right? Then we're talking about HR policies too. And like, how many strikes does it take until you're out? Right. Um, But I think the, the piece around that story and the file being kept is like, within any organization, how many things um, might be known by individuals or groups of individuals, but are never spoken or never spoken out loud, right? And these are like all the things that are present in the system that I think everyone, when they're attuned, can feel, but there's never voice given to them. And I think Britna's story is just um, a really powerful testament to, to what you're saying, Dan, of when we give voice to something, that is how it begins to shift, right? And I think this this dovetails back into our last um, conversation with Tony Bond and Marcus Erb from the Great Place to Work Institute. And they talked a lot about, you know, organizations that are devoted to DEIB work, leaders that are devoted to this work, 
make a lot of space for uncomfortable conversations so that all of those things that are kind of lingering in the system or under the carpet have space to come up um, and breathe a bit. That sounds like such a refreshing environment. One of the things I love that Brittna talks about towards the end when she's talking about her new role, which is in an environment um, where she feels like she belongs and there's a lot of space for everyone in the room and for everyone's opinion. We had a beautiful conversation at the end about what's possible from there, right? And about the well of one's own creativity that opens up and, and all of the kind of emotional and mental energy that becomes available when we are in an environment where we are um, no longer negotiating the landmines of bias. I think what you're saying is that when people can be themselves, when they can bring them whole self to work, they flourish. Yeah. And I also wonder in a larger level, you know, if we were to sort of envision a utopic world in which everyone was bringing their whole self, it's mind blowing. It's like, what would be possible in, in terms of solving some of the big problems and challenges that we face today? We're grateful that you're listening to our podcast. To say thank you, we're offering 25% off our popular series of primers, the building blocks of emotional intelligence. Use the code FPP25 at checkout. The building blocks series explains each EI competency in practical, actionable terms. Order a set for you, a loved one, or a colleague at keystepmedia.com shop and use the discount code FPP25. That's keystepmedia.com slash shop. Discount code FPP25. Thank you. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, EI and Beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by our co-hosts, Daniel Goleman, Hanuman Goleman, and Elizabeth Solomon, and is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Sujata, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guests, Brittna Bennett. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Gabriela Acosta. Audio production by Michelle Zipkin. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes Play Pelagic by Little Glass Men, and theme music by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. 
For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.